how do you price an ad on your channel? That's probably the most common question we get from other creators. And it was the biggest question we had when we first started on YouTube. So we're hosting a live workshop on how to price yourself. This is everything that we've learned in the past 13 years of being on YouTube and our simple three-step process that'll help you develop concrete pricing. So if you wanna join us for this live session, just go to colinandsamir.com slash live. Enter your email and you'll get all the information about our live event on May 9th. All right, hope you enjoy this episode of The Colin and Samir Show. Welcome to Creator Support. This is an audio exclusive episode here on The Colin and Samir Show, and it's what we're calling Creator Support. We have a website where you can submit a question, and our job is to support as many creators as we can. So we pulled a bunch of questions that you guys asked us about being content creators, questions about making money as content creators, and questions about us. And today, we're going to answer them. I'm Colin. And I'm Samir. And we've been creators for the past 10 years. We have the goal of educating and empowering the next generation of creators. And one of the ways we do that is break down the business of different types of creators on our YouTube channel, as well as here on the podcast. All right, Colin, question. Answer. Should we start the show? Okay, let's start. All right. All right, before we get into this first Question, did you see that Logan Paul launched a new business? I did see that he wrestled in the WWE oh, and yeah. he had a Pokemon card around his neck that was worth, I believe, $10 million? $5 million. Okay. Yeah. $10 million, million would have been cool, though. But, like, Pokemon cards are worth a lot of money. $10 million, $5 million, whatever it is. Millions of dollars. It's crazy that he had that around his neck, and it's even crazier that he was wrestling in the WWE. What can this guy not do? Everything seems like it's a possibility for Logan Paul. And everything seems like it adds up to the next thing. So when he wrestled in WrestleMania, he had this Pokemon card around his neck. Then the Guinness Book of World Records was there right after WrestleMania to say it was the most expensive card ever. And then a few days later, he launches a new company, Liquid Marketplace. Now, this company allows you to buy fractional ownership in rare collectibles. That might sound really confusing. Why don't we break that down? Okay, so as an example, my dad collects baseball cards. He's got some pretty amazing cards. Let's say he's got a Mickey Mantle rookie card. He can put that card up on Logan's website, and a bunch of different people can buy partial ownership in the card. So if the price of that card goes up, those people who own shares of the card benefit from that. So it's not so different from buying stocks. You know, I think there's probably some nuance there that's different. We've talked about this as a potential opportunity that it could come to YouTube where people could buy fractional ownership in YouTube channels. But right now we're seeing it mostly in art, in collectibles, and crypto and Web3 has really unlocked the ability to buy pieces of something valuable on the internet and verify ownership. And that's what his new marketplace does, mm -hmm. is it will verify the ownership in this good that, as he says in the video, they keep safe and they store. I truly believe this is a big trend to look out for, fractional ownership. There's companies like Masterworks that do this in more you know, traditional art markets. But I think this is going to start to happen. There's a company called Royal that does this in music. Joystream, which Joy does Stream. it for video. So we're starting to see fractional ownership take place. And it's something that we made a video about on our channel. If you want to check that out, it's called Why Mr. Beast Should Sell His Channel. And it explores this idea of fractional ownership on YouTube. So that was pretty wild. Samir. Yeah. Did you hear uh -huh. that Elon Musk 
bought 9.2% of Twitter, making him the biggest shareholder in the company. He bought it for $2.9 billion. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And then it was announced that he's going to be on the board. Yeah. Today on Twitter, he's asking people, do you want an edit button and putting polls? Right. right. So I did see this. I kind of saw something like this coming because he was tweeting about Twitter and, and wanting to be, to be more of like a free speech platform. And, you know, I was very confused by the CEO's interaction with him. Parag Agarwal tweeted out like, be very careful uh, what you vote for in this poll because it's going to actually impact our decision. And you're like, wait, was that a joke or was that real? Are you being playful? Like no one knows anything about Parag Agarwal. So it's like, what type? Yeah, are you well, like a straight shooter or are you like joking around right now? Cause Elon's kind of playful. So yeah, I mean, listen, we live in a world where anything's possible right now. And when you have that type of money, you just be like, you know what? I really like Twitter. I mean, Elon Musk is one of the biggest creators on Twitter. He will shape markets yeah. with a single tweet. Mm -hmm. It made me think about YouTube. How would I feel if let's say Mr. Beast became mm. the majority stakeholder in the platform? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't necessarily feel one way or another about it. But it's just interesting that as time goes on, very powerful people who are also in their own right creators. I mean, Elon Musk has meme dealers and mm -hmm. he does, in a sense, create a lot of content. He showed up one time in PewDiePie's YouTube channel reviewing memes. Right. Like the guy is a creator and now he's going to play a major role in this social media tech platform. I think what's really interesting is kind of the the resurgence of Twitter in the last seven years. And maybe it's more of just, it's been on a steady rise, but Twitter has become the platform of choice for creators like Elon Musk, very powerful people. And I think Elon Musk, other VCs, crypto millionaires, they all love Twitter and want it to see, want to see it grow in a certain way. So it's really interesting that people with that much money love that. Like, I don't know that that's as, as prevalent on YouTube. Right no, now. I don't think it is. I, I think it's much more prevalent on on Twitter that people with a lot of money want to impact the platform. Agreed. It'll be interesting to follow this and see where it goes. Who knows? Who knows what's about to happen next? Who knows? All right. Our first question from Creator Support. It's like a hotline, the Creator Support hotline. Maybe one day we'll take calls. That would be amazing, actually. It's a great idea. All right. Hey, I'm from Egypt and being a content creator isn't something popular or talked about with transparency. So I was wondering how I should decide my pricing when it comes to brand deal. First of all, hello in Egypt. That is very cool that you listen from there. I think the way I like to think about pricing is by thinking about inputs and outputs. What I mean by that is like, how much does it cost you? What's your output? How much money do you spend in a week? And if you don't know that answer, even you could just take a step back and be like, Okay, I'm a, I'm a freelance creator. I live in this house. My rent per month is, let's say your rent is $2,000. And you divide that by four. So you're like, okay, in a week, I spend 500 bucks on rent. I have a computer. I have this subscription. And you add up all your costs. And you say, I put out one video a week. So your weekly video has to cover your costs plus a little bit. And that's at least how I would start to base pricing and be like, oh, okay, so maybe it's $1,000. That's how much I need to make. And, or maybe you start getting to a point where it's $10,000, right? Or it's, it's $15,000. And you also need to value your time in that equation. How much is your time worth? Is it $20 an hour? Is it $30 an hour? Is it a $500 a day rate? And try and get yourself to a calculation 
for how much output there is to make a YouTube video. And that will give you some sense of what the input needs to be. That's how I would do it. Really think about it as like a math equation. Now, as you grow, that changes and that starts to come on viewership, on type of audience you have. But if people aren't biting on that price that you've developed, then that might mean that either A, you're not developed yet enough as a creator, or B, you're not talking to the right advertisers. So set your own price, go out to market with it. If it's not working, try and change something in that equation. I would just say, make sure you understand that not all views are created equal. So depending on who your audience is, if there's a brand out there that wants to reach the same audience and make them feel the same way that you do, then you're going to demand higher rates. Using us as an example, a couple of years ago, we asked Ian Borthwick, who was working with SeatGeek, mm -hmm. doing integrations, how much he would pay us. And he started calculating with a CPM and mm -hmm. came up with an amount that was way lower than anything we would ever say yes to. Right. And the reason we were pitched a lower rate at that time is because our audience are not high school, college age, young professionals who are looking to go and entertain themselves and go to sporting events and concerts. Yeah, there might be the, a subset of our audience that, of course, would buy something from SeatGeek, but people come to us for a very specific reason. It's not a direct hit. Yeah. Whereas it's going to be much closer to a direct hit when you look at what he was doing with creators like David Dobrik, mm -hmm. or even like an Arak or a Mr. Beast, where sure. you've got like a mass audience here. Mm -hmm. There's a much higher percentage that you're going to hit the right people. Whereas with us, we're looking to educate people on the world of creators. And yeah. there are a lot of brands that want to do that, and we're better aligned with them. Mm -hmm. And we'll get higher rates because of that. All right. Next question. Do either of you fear your privacy and safety being in danger because of your status on the internet? Fans coming to your house, being attacked in public uh, by people who dislike you for some reason. Curious about this. I don't fear for my safety. I've never felt like at any time there was a fan interaction or anything like that that scared me. For the most part, whenever we run into anyone that knows us, they're really excited to see us and talk to us about mm -hmm. creators. Yeah, I, I've never feared for my safety, but I will say that, you know, this is an interesting question to happen right now because last night I went to the gym and... More often than not, now, when I go to the gym, I get approached. And last night, I was just not in the headspace. And I thought to myself when I walked in the gym, like, I really hope no one comes mm. up to me. And as I got to working out, I started having, like, a paranoia that everyone was looking at me. And I was like, oh, there's someone here who watches the show. I could, like, feel it. It was so weird. And then, you know almost like clockwork, I'm walking and someone gets really close to me. And I was like, uh, and I turn and he was like, Samir. And I was like, Hey, yeah. And he was like, Oh, I'm a big fan of the show. I want to pitch you my app. I want to tell you about what I'm doing. And then he was kind of like, can I have your number? You know? And it's, it's just kind of like this situation where very nice guy, but I was just not in the space to have that interaction. And I'm not always in the space to have an interaction with someone. And it's, it's an interesting trade-off and an interesting byproduct of being a creator that you kind of give that up as you grow. Like you being in a public space, yeah, someone's going to come up to you, you know? And there's going to be times also as a creator where you are excited about that and times where you're just not in the mood, you know? Yeah, for me, more often than not, it's digital feedback that I experience more often. Like mm -hmm. I read the comments almost ready to see a negative one and then yeah. feel that and sort of close the tab and move on. Right. Like I, yeah. I am tense when I read the comments and 
that for me, it just comes with the job and it gets easier, I think, over time. Yeah. But now, now at the same time, you know, you and I were walking in Manhattan and probably in a block of, you know, five blocks got recognized three times and got to meet people and have great conversation and take photos. And like when you're in the headspace for it, it's amazing. There's just times where you're not in that headspace. All right. Very relevant question right now. How do you do taxes as a creator? And what do you classify your revenue as? AdSense, brand deals, et cetera. I mean, this was one of the first decisions we made when we became an LLC was to get an accountant because mm -hmm. we realized neither you nor I wanted to be like the main person actually pushing those buttons. Yeah, agreed. I'm still very involved in this process. I classify all of our expenses um, with our accountant. And that's a lot because, you know, for him, he's not as aware of what's a production cost for us. And when you're a creator, production costs are all over the place. We just bought a car. Production cost. And that was a production cost. That was for an episode. If you get a certain outfit and get your hair cut because you're about to film a show. Yeah. And there, there's that some, can be a production cost. It can be. There's, there's a little bit of gray area there. And it's a little confusing when you are your own talent, your own network, uh, your own company. So my best advice is to get an accountant. And if you don't have one, you know, learn as much as you can. I had to, I don't have any traditional training in taxes, but just because I took on that side of the business, had to learn a lot, had to look up stuff, had to learn about how things are taxed, um, talk to experts, talk to friends. So, you know, doing your taxes as a creator, it's pretty similar to doing your taxes as a freelancer or as a independent contractor. Like there's a ton of resources to learn how to do that. But I do think someone needs to solve this and be the tax firm for creators. Yeah, I there has to be someone do to think that. Yeah, that, that does need to happen. All right. New question. Hi, I'm helping one of my friends with controlling things like content, brand deals, and PR. What is one thing I could do to make this a great partnership between us two? So essentially, you're becoming your friend's manager. That's not an easy thing to do. Now, the manager-creator relationship gets really sticky, primarily because the creator has to do a lot of the work. Now, the creator typically can't handle doing all the deals without a manager or someone to help them catch all of these opportunities that come in. But the creator's work is pretty exponentially more than a manager's work. So I think understanding that and being empathetic towards that is really important to start. And recognizing that coming up with new ideas, publishing content, that's hard. It's emotionally hard. It's creatively hard. It's draining. It's taxing. Um, and it does get really tough when you have someone who's maybe working on a commission or revenue share with you and taking, you know, a traditional management, which is like 15% off the top. That gets really hard because you have a lot of expenses as a creator. You have a lot of work as the creator. And a lot of the opportunities are coming to you as the creator. So I would say if you guys are friends, you're going to want to set really clear expectations about what your role is and how you're compensated and how that might change over time if the numbers get really big. That's a role too that can be super flexible where you're asked to do so many different things. So I would just make sure to check in and be really clear with what the creator wants at any given time. Maybe set quarterly goals of this quarter. As a creator, I'm actually just really focused on getting my process figured out. Or I want to hit this level of viewership. I want to get this many brand deals. Or I want to launch a new podcast. Like I think it's just about having that conversation up front about how you can support that person and being really clear about, you know, at the end of this term, however long it is, if we hit these things, then we know that that's a success and everyone's done their job. 
Yeah, I think goal setting is like number one and doing that very regularly and checking in. That was really helpful for us and has been really helpful for us to make sure that we're aligned on our priorities and how things are working. From a business model perspective, I think probably this relationship will start to move in a direction where you are more of a business operator and finding a way to say, this is the salary I want. And to start, I'm going to take it as a commission. You know, I'll take 15% off the top of all the deals we do. And then eventually, once we can afford that, I'll take the salary plus a percentage of the profits so that you're, you're incentivized to grow the bottom line of the business, not just the top line. Top line's a lot easier to grow. The bottom line is what's hard to grow. So that's my advice in terms of how to get into a commercial relationship. But as with any relationship, expect conflict, expect challenges, and make sure you have space to communicate maybe like a weekly meeting or something like that where you guys can can talk to each other and give each other feedback. And probably make that weekly meeting over breakfast with coffee. Oh, we used to do that. We used to do that. We used to do that. That was great. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, we should do that again. That was really, yeah, really nice. It feels better when you're, at least for me, eating bacon. Yeah. All right. I am a tech YouTuber. How do you drive traffic to your YouTube channel so that people can be more aware of the channel and the content that you make? Here's the thing as a tech YouTuber, you're in a great situation because there is a set schedule on when tech products come out and when everyone's going to be interested. But you're also at a disadvantage because a lot of people are fighting for the same number of eyeballs during that time when a new tech product is released. So I think your challenge and where I would suggest spending your time is in the ideas and what differentiates you from everyone else. And that comes down to the format of your episode, the secondary narratives that you add in. Is it your personality? Are you doing some sort of challenge while you're reviewing the tech? You know, visually, what do your episodes look like in relation to some of the most popular tech creators? I think that's a very competitive space, but there's also a lot of constants, which is great because you always know there's going to be an influx of content and things to talk about. You just have to try and differentiate yourself. You know, one thing to remember is that YouTube's a search platform. So growth on YouTube works really well um, when you're caught in search or something that people are searching for. Th the reality is like you want to find organic growth on YouTube because that's going to be the most sustainable. Any other type of growth and it might not be sticky, right? The audience might not stay. It might not be able to be repeatable. So it just takes time. And the last thing I'll say is focus on the audience you have, not the audience you don't have. So if you have 100 people watching, be as attentive to those hundred people because if each of them shared with one friend, you just doubled your audience and really think about how that is how you create exponential growth. Not when you don't attend to those hundred people because they are your biggest supporters and they can help you get to a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand. And that means picking a niche within a niche, really mm -hmm. not just necessarily talking about tech, but finding, you know, what very specific thing about tech do you like? It reminds me of, the Korean vegan, which we mm -hmm. talked about in our episode on Wednesday, you know, she doesn't just make tutorials about how to make Korean food. It's vegan Korean food. So if you're someone who's vegan, you also like Korean food, that's a direct hit and you know exactly who to share it with. Yeah. So definitely mm -hmm. niche down and then it'll make it a lot easier for your audience to stick around and to share your videos. What's a target CTR to strive for when a video is first posted? So CTR means click through rate. On YouTube, it's a very unique platform that we have these titles and thumbnails, and we're trying to get people to click on them. If people don't click on your video, 
they don't watch it. It's very simple. So click-through rate is the percentage of people who click on it over the impressions, meaning like if there's 100,000 impressions and 10,000 people click, that's a 10% click-through rate. So, yeah. yeah. I would say for us, we've had click-through rates on videos when they launch anywhere from 3% up to 20%. But for me, if we land around 9 and 10% and we hold that for a period of time on that first day, that's when I won't think about changing the thumbnail. Yeah, what's interesting is that as your channel becomes more consistent, as your channel you know, starts to grow, YouTube will start showing your content to more people. That just naturally starts happening. And so let's say we get a million impressions on one of our thumbnails and we have a 10% click-through rate. That's a fast way to get 100,000 views. If our thumbnail isn't great and we have a 3% click-through rate, then that's the difference of having... 30,000 views, it's pretty significant. And so the, the, one of the ways to impact YouTube viewership is your title and your thumbnail. Now, when we have low click-through rates, so let's say anything below 4%, um, for us, we want to make a change. And we change thumbnails quite a bit. And a lot of that is because we're trying to prep the video and set it for long-term success. Because a lot of times what happens is over time, your click-through rate naturally goes down because the impressions go up. So if we land at like a 5% click-through rate over long periods of time, that means the video is going to do really well. All right. I'm a smaller channel. Is it worth launching merch now? I have a few thoughts on this. I'm curious your opinion. I think if it's sustainable for you, then sure. I think it can be a really nice indicator for your community that they're a part of your community. And it's a nice thing that they can have and support you over time. I remember being a huge fan of Casey Neistat and wishing that he launched merch. Granted, he was around 300, 400,000 subscribers. And it's relatively, you know, it's larger, but I would have loved to have been able to support at that time. And he never really did it up until, you know, closer to two or 3 million or something like that. Way more than that. Later he did, than he that. Did it closer to like 10 million. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you can do it sustainably, uh, then, you know, it's, I wouldn't look at it necessarily as a way to, provide from an income perspective if you have a small audience, but it, it can be a nice thing to give your community that option. I think more than that, it's actually a cool opportunity to make content about making merch and like give you something to talk about. So when we first started, we were trying to find our format and trying to figure out what we were doing. And one of our favorite series, and I'll, I'll say are, because I think this is true, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of my favorite series to make was called Now Boarding. And it was about us starting the skateboard company called Boardies. Essentially, this was like a drop of merch for us because we just did it once and we did a limited run and it was skateboards. And we did a three-part series about how we went about concepting, building, uh, shipping these skateboards. And making the skateboards gave us a series to make. So actually the merch informed the content and that built community around entrepreneurship, around starting something, around being vulnerable about the challenges of starting a business. And then our community was able to buy those skateboards and we sold hundreds of skateboards. And we, I think the most amount of viewership one of those episodes got was 15,000. So you started to think about like, especially as a smaller channel, talking about starting a business even with a small audience, it's a really great way to have engaging content, to learn more about the creator, going through the ups and downs of launching a business, to build community, and to drive like reasonable revenue. So I would say, yeah, be careful with how much you spend 
because you might not make money on it, but it's a cool opportunity to tell a story and a cool opportunity to have content. All right, last question. This is a question from a creator who makes content at the intersection of tech, politics, internet culture, and Formula One. Okay, so here we go for the question. It seems like I really need to stick to a niche to get good traction and grow versus offering a wide variety of content. Is this still true or am I looking at this the wrong way? I would say this is 100% still true. So It I might would, be more true than ever. Yeah, I think I would urge you to look at those four or five categories that you listed out and pick the one you're most passionate about. And that's not to say you can't talk about the other ones, but maybe it's tech as it pertains to Formula One Agreed. or politics, world politics as it pertains to Formula One. I think actually the business of Formula One would be really interesting. I totally. would love to learn about that, about all these athletes as entrepreneurs and how this all works. Like I would be super interested in that. But I think the reason niche is so incredibly important is because that helps you build depth. And I really believe we're moving in a direction where on social media, depth matters more than width. Meaning if you have 10,000 loyal fans, you can actually build a better business and, and provide more valuable content than if you have 100,000 casual fans. And to have loyal, dedicated fans, you have to be hyper-targeted, hyper-specific in your content. So I would say be niche and think about your social media channels as shows, not networks. Meaning if we think about our YouTube channel as a show, like the Colin and Samir show. So imagine if you were watching a show like Euphoria and you go back to the Euphoria feed and you click on it and it's a completely different show about a different topic, you would be pretty off put by that. You'd be like, what the hell is this? So think about it in that lens and say, this is a show, just like a TV show. And if a new episode of this TV show comes out and it's about a completely different topic, you're going to lose viewers. They can't trust what the episodes are going to be about or what the content is going to be about. So make sure that you build trust with the audience around what exactly this is about and why exactly I'm coming back to you. Who is the audience and what is the value prop? All right, creator support. Hopefully uh, the creators that we answered questions for feel supported. And if you have questions for us, we're going to put a link in the description of this podcast. It's a form that will auto sign you up to our newsletter, The Published Press as well. So if you're interested in that, it's a great way to do that. And we do answer one question on our Sunday send of The Published Press. So you can also get your question answered in our newsletter. All right, Colin. That's it. You have a last question for me. Who do you think you are, man? Why are you the way you (laughs) are? All right, thanks for listening. Uh, Make sure to check out our latest YouTube video and we will see you next week.